Go ahead and follow along with me as we start again, Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant found out that one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii um, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have the same mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, good morning and happy new year to everyone. It's good to see you. My name is Marty. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Old North Church, and we're glad you're here to hear of our merciful King and grateful for Justin and leading us in a prayer and in scripture reading. And as you might can tell, Justin's fit in really well around here. And we're grateful for Justin and Abby to give themselves to us uh, these last few months and Lord willing for a couple years to come. Uh, I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open in front of you, uh, as we will be looking in detail at this text this morning. A few years ago, my friend Jason had a predicament at the gas pump. And no, it wasn't the prices. Uh, Back then, gas was quite a bit cheaper. Instead, it was the predicament of a neat and tidy mind. See, on his screen, he had two readings at the gas pump. One was his gallons reading, which was at 9.99. And the other was the total price, which was then a great price. It was $20 even. What a bind. What's he going to do? I mean, you can't, any normal sane person can't leave it at 9.99. But one squeeze of the trigger and you go to $20.03. What a predicament. Well, when I found out that I had to preach on January 1st, I was in the same predicament. Being the contrarian that I am, there is no way on January 1st that I'm going to preach on New Year's resolutions. But then I started thinking, and that's where most of my problems come in. I started thinking that everyone who knows me knows there is no way I'm going to preach on New Year's resolutions. So what am I to do? Well, let's talk about New Year's resolutions. Actually, let's talk about one New Year's resolution that I want us to resolve this morning. And I want us to resolve this morning to be, in 2023, a more forgiving person. There you go. Straightforward and simple, isn't it? And that's why I picked the passage that you heard this morning. It's one of those straightforward passages in scriptures that actually puts me in another bind. 
I mean, as you heard Matthew 18 being read this morning, just a few minutes ago, it's so straightforward and so clear that it actually makes preaching on it very, very difficult. I mean, if you didn't get the point when you heard it the first time, I don't know how much more I can do to help you. I mean, Peter asked a very straightforward question to Jesus. How many times should I forgive a brother in Christ who keeps sinning against me? And Jesus answers basically a whole bunch. And then goes on, by the time we get to the end of the passage, to issue a very clear warning to those who don't forgive. So in short, in 2023, we better be on an ever-growing path to be a more forgiving person. But as you would guess, there's a lot more there in the passage. And I wanted to make sure this morning that we don't leave unless we know the things that Jesus wants us to know from Matthew 18. And the very first thing he wants us to know from Matthew 18, Jesus wants us to know that rules, or dare I say resolutions, won't change you. So here in Matthew 18, Jesus has spent quite a bit of teaching, actually up to Matthew 18, he spent quite a time preaching and painting a picture of a kingdom, a new kingdom, which will look like as he gathers people together here on earth now. And one of the big points Jesus makes is that the kingdom of God is made up of a bunch of people who are sinners and don't deserve it. For us, this is great, but old news. For the disciples and Peter, this was earth shattering. Jesus then goes on to start to instruct his disciples how to live in peace and harmony with brothers and sisters in Christ who are yet still sinners. And so our passage right before the one we read in verses 15 and 20 in Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to deal with brothers and sisters who sin. So it makes sense now when we look at verse 21 in our passage, why Peter is asking this question. How do we actually live and get along with sinners, especially sinners who sin against me? This isn't a procedural question. This is a very personal question. And if you've been sinned against directly, you know how personal of a question it is. It's hard, very hard to forgive someone who has really, really wronged you. But Peter also brings up the fact that forgiveness is actually a very complex subject. If my brother sins, as we learned in Matthew 18, he can be restored. But what if he commits the same sin against me again and again? Is he really repentant if he goes on with that same sin? In other words, how often should I go on forgiving before enough is enough? And again, if you've dealt with anyone in your life and even remotely close relationship for any period of time, you get this. This seems like a very fair question. So Peter starts the bidding. He throws out the number in verse 21 you see there is, should I forgive him seven times? And that number seven really isn't just out of the blue. For in Peter's day, in Jesus's day, there was a rabbinic teaching going around that expressed how you're supposed to deal with serial sinners in your life. And this is found in our Jewish Mishnah. It says this, if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he is forgiven. The fourth time he is not forgiven. So Peter's throwing out a number that was actually kind of generous. I mean, seven is a lot of chances to give people before we withhold forgiveness. 
And Peter thought that it was actually quite a concession to be personally offended, to forbear seven times, especially compared to the rabbi's number. So therefore, in verse 22, Jesus' response back would have been a complete shock to Peter. Jesus' response, you see it there? Seven times? No, I tell you, 77 times is the number. Now, some of your translations might push that number to even higher to be 70 times seven. Probably the most literal translation is 77. But actually, the point Jesus is trying to make is more in line with 70 times seven. Because Jesus isn't just extending the forgiveness number upward to a much bigger number. You know, 77 times you sin, but on the 78th time, it all changes. But Jesus is really saying, who is counting? Forgiveness isn't about getting the number right. There are no upper limits on forgiveness. Don't try to put a number on it, just keep forgiving. And for myself, I'm very grateful. For while 77 might seem like a large number, it isn't that big a number if you ask my long-suffering wife and children. And I'm sorry to say that even 70 times seven won't cut that either. Thank God Jesus wasn't just instructing for a bit more space on this forgiveness thing. Thank God Jesus wasn't just giving a new rule, a higher number to be, you know, more kind than those pesky rabbis. No, he's turning the whole idea of forgiveness on its head from a procedural idea of counting and numbers to forgiveness from the heart, as he says there in verse 35. And our hearts are really given to be like Peter's in this moment, aren't they? I mean, if you're looking for the right number, the exact number, you're really not looking to be forgiving or kind, but you're actually looking to be ready to put someone out to withhold forgiveness to punish them for their wrongdoing. Yes, there is real and legitimate hurt when someone personally sins against you. Of course there is. But what we often don't see in ourselves and own up to in ourselves is that we often feel like we're the justified person when we've been sinned against, the person on the high moral ground compared to the person who's asking the forgiveness and that I'm actually right to withhold forgiveness to keep them down. But instead of this kind of teaching, Jesus was actually teaching Peter about love and humility. I mean, after all, Jesus is the author of love. He's the greatest teacher ever on the subject of love. And it was his spirit that went on to inspire Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 to write that love keeps no number, no record of wrongs. For Jesus knew that no one will be a more forgiving person just by getting the number right and pushing it a little higher. A new rule, a higher number, will never make you or me a forgiving person because it can't change our hearts. And that is what Jesus is after. He knows that it will take a whole reorientation of yourself before you can reorient yourself towards another. And that's why he attaches this parable to this little interaction he has with Peter. Jesus first needs to inform Peter of his own offense before God and his own need of forgiveness before Peter can evaluate someone else's offense towards him. And that leads us to the second thing we need to know from Jesus in this passage. Jesus wants to make sure we know that a rule can't change us and also that we need to know that our debt is absurdly high. 
Look there in verse 23. Jesus starts to compare the kingdom of heaven to a king who decides to start settling his account with his workers. And he calls one of those workers, those servants in, who owes him quite a sum. And as I said to you earlier, this parable is pretty straightforward, but I think you'll miss the impression the parable is supposed to give you if you miss the important detail there in verse 24. See, this servant has racked up a huge debt. And actually, the amount given is not in dollars, but the equivalent of day's wages. And if your eyesight is up to it, take a look at the footnote there, verse 24, down very small print at the bottom there on 10,000 talents. See, a talent was about 20 years of labor. So if this man owes 10,000 talents, if my math is right, he owes the king 200 thousand years of work. For us in today's dollars, that could be anywhere from 12 to 30 billion dollars. It's an absurd amount. It's meant to be evocative and it colors the whole parable. See, it makes it quite ridiculous there in verse 26 when you see the servant get on his knees and plead with the Lord to have patience on me. I promise I'll pay it all back. It's an absurdity. He can never pay back what he owes. And then it heightens the contrast between the first servant's debt that was relieved and then his own treatment of the second servant. Notice the comparison there in verses 26 through 29. The first servant, as I said, fell on his knees and pleaded with the king. And the king actually responded to give him more than what he asked for. He asked for patience. And what did the king give him? Mercy and cancered his entire massive obscene debt on the spot. Well, this same servant went out to settle his own accounts for some reason with another fellow servant who, if you see there in verse 28, owes him 100 denarii. And again, you can go in your footnotes and you would see that's about a half a year of wages, maybe 20 to $30,000. And that second servant did the same thing the first servant did. He fell on his knees and he pleaded for patience Now you'd think when that happened, the first servant repeating the scene would just trigger the response that the king just gave him. But no, look at verse 30. The first servant took the opportunity to serve justice and threw him in debtor's prison. Again, the story is meant to evoke a response to say how absurd Didn't this servant know what the king just did for him? And that's the point. Now framed in this light, Peter is starting to feel a bit foolish about his question. Would seven or 77 or 70 times seven be the amount of debt he could withhold against his brother who sins against him? If Peter himself was forgiven billions and billions and billions times any of those numbers? No rule or number can make you more forgiving. Only a reassessment of your own forgiveness quotient in front of God will help you just to begin to know how to treat others in turn. Well, those are two of the things we need to know in order to be a forgiving from the heart kind of person in 2023. But there's one actually more important thing we need to know. And that Jesus tells us that he knows that the greatness of the king 
who can forgive such debts. We skim by this thus far in our passage, but it's actually meant to be the most impressionable point of the passage about the king. So we've established already of the high debt the servant owes. And in case I haven't been clear about this, by telling the parable in this way, and in the context of the question Peter asked Jesus, Jesus is saying that Peter's sin, your sin, my sin, in the eyes of God, amounts to be the equivalent of billions and billions and billions of dollars of debt, personal debt. It's what we've been living in two ways to live these last few months. We owe this massive debt because of all the time and all the ways that we rebel against God, our creator and ruler, and go our own way. All the times we've flat out disobeyed him, all the times we've hurt and injured and done wrong to others, either by what we've done or what we've left undone. And that number each and every day goes up. Every time we ignore God, we complain, we're thankless, prayerless, joyless, the list goes on and on. Multiply that every day for as many days as you've been alive and the number is staggering. And with that in mind, look at verse 27. Three amazing actions of the king. He took pity on this terrible sinner. He canceled his debt and he let him go. He set him free. This man owes the king absolutely nothing for his billions and billions of debt, of stupidity. What a wonderful king. A king who is so big and so powerful and so great that he actually can absorb billions of dollars of debt himself. And a king at the same time is, who's so humble and merciful enough to pardon that debt accrued because of the countless personal attacks on himself. What a king. Sing his praises. <laughs> Tell the world. Honor his name. Go and be just like him. But that's not what the first servant does. He learns nothing about this wonderful king because he acts nothing like him. Remember, Jesus is teaching Peter something about the new kingdom and this kingdom that Jesus himself will oversee. And so he's doing so through the object lesson of forgiveness. And so sin and forgiveness here are taught through the idea of canceling debt. See, when someone wrongs you, they owe you something, don't they? Money or time or more often emotional toll of sleepless nights, tears, stress because of a breakdown in relationship. Wrongdoing generates some kind of obligation between two or more people. And forgiving is canceling that debt. Whether it's something tangible like money, it's forgiven, or something less tangible, like we won't act and act revenge. We won't be angry. We won't cut this person off from a relationship. See, in the parable, the servant was to be put off into debtor's slavery. But the king instead allows him to remain with him. Forgiveness says, I will open my life back open to you, even though it costs me something today and ongoing. And so forgiveness from the heart as we're striving to be is not just a warm attitude or just a statement to say you're forgiven. It's not that easy. It's costly. 
One author says it this way, all of us are like the servant who owes the king a laughably huge amount of money. But there's nothing comical about the debt we owe to this king. It's massive. It's completely unrepayable. And it renders all of us liable to a decisively negative judgment when the time comes when God will settle accounts with you. How many sins will you have to beg forgiveness for? Seven? 77? 77,000? We all have an unrepayable debt towards God and it's impossible for us to good work our way to make up for it. We can't do it. But Jesus can And Peter goes on in the Gospel of Matthew to learn that all the guilt and punishment due on him is completely wiped away. And it's Jesus, the king himself, will take this debt on himself and die and take this massive sin debt all absorbed on him. The kingdom of God is like no other kingdom because it has a king like no other king. And that leads us to the last piece of knowledge Jesus wants to give us before we close out our time. And he says at the very end there that Jesus warns us to live out what you now know. See, that's the big main point of the parable as you look there in verses 32 through 35. Be not only hearers of the word, but doers. In this case, how do you really know you lament your own personal massive debt before the Lord? How do you know you lament it? Or maybe ask another question. How do you know or how do you show your belief in a bountifully merciful God who himself pays that massive debt? How do you know you believe these things? Well, Jesus gives the litmus test right here. How do you treat others? If you've been shown so much mercy, you must show much mercy. Otherwise, you can't expect to receive mercy. It's the same thing the Lord said at the end of the Lord's Prayer. You might know the Lord's Prayer, but this is the part we don't pray for some reason. Jesus ends the Lord's Prayer with this back in Matthew 6. If you forgive others of their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. Fast forward to Matthew 18, and Jesus' teaching heightens the stakes here and keeps in line with how evocative this parable is. So you see there in verses 34 and 35, there's a chilling ending to this parable and a warning. Note that our translators, for some reason, decide to tone this warming down. Because if you see that word there in verse 34, that you'll get turned over to the jailers, it's actually the word torturers. If you don't show mercy, great mercy, then indeed you won't be given mercy, but instead be turned over to torturers. And no doubt Jesus here is talking about hell and Satan at this point. It's as clear as that. If you've been forgiven much, you must forgive much. And to do otherwise is to be just as absurdly wicked as that first servant in the parable. Now I want to answer two questions quickly that may come to your mind at this point. The first question, as I was reading through this originally, I thought, isn't it quite an abrupt change for such a merciful king to turn his very recently pardoned servant over to torturers? Uh, New Testament uh, scholar Don Carson, I couldn't say it any better than this. He says, Jesus sees no incongruity in the actions of a king who forgives so bountifully and punishes so ruthlessly. And neither should we. 
Indeed, it is precisely because he is a God of such compassion and mercy that he cannot possibly accept as his own those devoid of compassion and mercy. Now, this is not to say the king's compassion can be earned. Far from it. The servant is granted freedom only by virtue of the king's forgiveness. And with the Lord's, as with the Lord's prayer, those who are forgiven must forgive, lest they show themselves incapable of receiving forgiveness. And the second question might come to you as well. Thinking about this passage, does this mean that we earn our salvation, that we earn our forgiveness by forgiving others? Well, quite simply, you don't earn forgiveness. The word give, forgiveness is given, not earned. But Jesus's point is that you can't have it both ways. If you want and need it yourself, you must extend it to others. In fact, if you refuse forgiveness to others, when you have been shown such extravagant forgiveness, vastly more than anything anyone could ever owe us, is just appalling. You can't have forgiveness for me, but not for thee. And if you're reluctant to forgive, or if you think there is a limit, which forgiveness has a limit beyond which you can go, then you failed to realize or forgotten just how massive your own debt is and how extravagant the mercy that has been shown to you. What we've learned this day is that forgiveness can't be theoretical. Forgiveness from the heart is an action orientation towards someone else. And Jesus' stark warning here at the end must stick with us. We must be forgiving people. And as we stand before others with the choice to forgive or for not, we can only do so with a sober reminder of our standing before the Lord as vastly indebted yet mercifully pardoned sinners. Now, there are, three, there are many implications for this, but there are three I want to make sure we talk about before we end. And one is actually not the main point of this, but we have to say it. We have to say it, that accounts one day will be settled, but any sin can be forgiven. And make no mistake, God will come one day to ask for payment for your debt, an accounting for your many, many sins. Judgment is coming, in other words. But also make no mistake, that absolutely no sin or any number of accumulated sins are unforgivable. All you need to do is ask. Praise God. If this is a day that you've come with much personal debt and guilt, this is a day to reach out and ask for pardon this day. This is also a day to come back to Jesus again and again and again. This is what we're called to do daily. Come to Jesus is a huge implication for this. Now, some people think that they can actually achieve God's kingdom by, you know, the Dave Ramsey approach, racking up very little debt at all, doing lots of good religious things to offset any debt you may actually accrue. Well, those people are right in trying to pursue right living and godliness, but they're very, very wrong on the amount of debt they actually have and how little their so-called good works go to offset that debt. Author David Seckham says this, many try to get through the doorway to the kingdom with a small armload of good works, unaware of the great bulk of unforgiven evil still strapped to their back. 
Now, others might think that they can't get into the kingdom at all because of the enormous debt, that massive sin they've committed, their number of sins they've committed. They're right about the debt, but they're wrong about the wonderful mercy of the king. Come to Jesus. The second implication is one that we have to be very careful about the yeah, but reasoning. You know, forgiveness from the heart can't be forgiveness, but still hold a grudge. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness from the heart can't be forgiveness, but I'm not going to change the way I treat you. That's not forgiveness. Now, I do realize that for some of us, if not many of us, forgiving a certain person in your life will come at great, great cost because you think I was so right and they wronged me so much. Let me repeat what I said at the very beginning that forgiveness is complex and that you will need help unraveling it because it means in practice very different things for every scenario. What if the person isn't a Christian? What if the person doesn't actually ask for forgiveness? Does it mean that I have to let this person back fully into my life as they, did, they were before? You need help. We all do. Find a mature Christian friend and talk about it. Come to one of your pastors or elders and talk about it. Pick up a good book on forgiveness. But even with all those caveats, I still want to say be very careful with the yeah, but way because you will get out of forgiving anyone because you're really good at justifying withholding forgiveness. And so am I. There are a thousand very reasonable yeah, but excuses. I know I need to forgive, but this person hurt me so bad. Start by rereading this parable. Or take a look at some of the people in our past who've done amazing things. Actually, Justin sent me this story this week when we were talking about this. It reminded me of this great story of Corrie Ten Boom, a Dutch Christian woman at the time of World War II, who with her and her sister, Betsy, decided to do the wonderfully, amazingly heroic thing is to hide Jews to save them from the Nazis. Well, Corey and Betsy themselves were outed and taken to a concentration camp, the infamous one called Ravensbrück. Betsy there died at the concentration camp, and Corey made it through. After the war, Corey was asked to give lots of talks about her experience as a Christian in Nazi death camps. <clears throat> and she was giving a talk in her homeland, the Netherlands, and she gave a talk on forgiveness. And one of the statements she says as she closed is that God will cast all your sins into the sea if you ask for forgiveness. She closed her talk and people shuffled out in a somber way. And there was one man who started to come up the side aisle and as he got closer to her, her heart began to sink because she's realized she recognized this man. He was a guard, a Nazi guard in Ravensbrück. He oversaw a lot of what Corey and Betsy had to go through, the terrible things. And the man walked up to Corey and said, Fraulein, since the war, I've become a Christian and I know God has, as you said, forgiven me from all the cruel things I did during the war. But I'd like to hear it from your lips. Fraulein, would you forgive me? And he reached out to shake her hand. She stood there, what seemed to be for an eternity, considering that her beloved Betsy, 
died in the place that he served. Could this man really erase participating in this slow, terrible death of her sister and hundreds of others simply by asking? But as she stood there with her hand extended, she remembered Matthew 18. And she did what she said was the hardest thing she had to do in her entire life. I stood there, she said, with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness from the heart isn't actually an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will and will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. As I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eye. And she cried, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. If anyone has a yeah, but excuse, it would be Corey Tenboom. Learn from her story and go back and read Matthew 18. And our final implication will be this. How do you want to live 2023? There are only two ways to live. And I know you're rolling your eyes at this point. You've heard this a lot this last fall. But this is actually saying something different, although similar. You can live as a justice person or a mercy person. So we all have knee-jerk reactions when some, someone comes to us and asks for forgiveness. We either knee-jerk as a, as a justice person or as a mercy person. When someone has said something very harsh to you or it's done something very terrible to you, do you say in your hearts when they ask for forgiveness, no, I can't do that. I know that there is no way I can forgive you because I would never do anything like that. Your action, reaction might be just, but there's a question you have to answer. Are you sure you want justice? Are you sure that when you turn from that person to God, are you able to say, Lord, I know I've made mistakes against you, but I know that the kinds of ones that this person made against me, I would never do. If that's you, may I suggest you write down this passage, Luke 18, and go home and read it immediately. It's another parable that Jesus told about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Be very careful about the person who takes the high moral ground. The kingdom is populated with loads of people who've done the things to you that you can't forgive. And the torturer is busy torturing loads of people who are justice people. 2023, we want our knee-jerk reaction to be just like this merciful king, compassionate, pardoning, and forgiving. Friends, if you're going to make a resolution in 2023, I'd suggest you make one that's focused on others and not yourself. But as we learned this morning, Jesus says you have to start with yourself. And if you want to be a forgiving from the heart person, you must first realize that you've been forgiven by a great and merciful God. And then and only then 
can your reactions be just like our great king? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your help. Father, we need humbled. We need encouraged. We need to know even more than we know this moment what a great and merciful king you are. We need to feel the depths of our depravity and yet not wallow in them because we know you have forgiven us and pardoned us our massive debt. And Lord, we need action to live as merciful people as you are the king of mercy. Lord, let us be wise, merciful Christians in 2023 so that people will see these good works and fall down and give glory to the great king of mercy, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.